Hey everyone, this is Mike Skinner. I want to welcome you to the sermon podcast for Sweetwater Christian Church. We are glad that you are interested in joining us as we follow Christ. If you'd ever like to support our ministry financially or just learn more about us, head on over to sweetwaterchristian.org. Thanks and God bless. So church is either one of the weirdest things that exists in the world or one of the most powerful. I'd argue it has to be one or the other. The, the fact that we come together and we sing songs and we read scripture and we pray with one another and someone gives up and, and gets a sermon. If you really think about it, and the fact that people sacrifice their time and their resources and their money and their gifts, I mean, if you really think about it, it's either a really weird situation that that people have kind of come up with for this or that reason, or it has within it the power to do something magnificent. I would argue that church, the community of believers, you and I regular people gathering together, that, that within us and within our gathering, there lies the power for major transformation for the type of ministry and healing and kingdom activity that you see in the Gospels with Jesus. And it is true that at many times and in in many places, the church fails and we don't live up to our calling and to the ideals that we have even for ourselves. And in, in many times and in many places, the church often, instead of acting as a a conduit of change and transformation and healing and wholeness, we can often inflict hurt and pain and trauma. But at the same time, there exists, I think, the ability for the world to experience something beautiful, for God to act in and through the church in a way in which all people would be drawn towards him. When it comes to the issue of mental illness, the church stands in a uniquely influential place. At one and the same time, the church can hurt people, let people down, fail people when they struggle with mental illness, psychological disorder, psychological distress. And yet at the same time, I think there lies within the church something very uniquely beautiful and possible about what God might do and might call a group of people to be and and how to act in in terms of caring for and standing for and bearing witness to the love of God for those who struggle with mental illness. We are wrapping up our sermon series on mental health in the church this morning, and and I want to do so by asking this question. How can we as a church, how can the church most faithfully serve and minister and help those who struggle with with mental illness, those who struggle with their mental health, those who have various symptoms of psychological distress or disorder. Taking care of people is hard. If you've ever been a caretaker at any level, whether you were solely responsible, maybe for a parent or a sibling, or whether you just helped out in a, a teamwork type situation, you know it's, it's hard work, it's exhausting. 
It's particularly hard when you don't know much about what is going on, if there's stigma surrounding a certain thing. So when it comes to mental illness, because of um, various things that kind of go into the situation, it's often hard for us to help and to help effectively and to really be as faithful as we can be as the body of Christ. What can, what can we do as a church? How can we help those who might be struggling around us? And, and we've mentioned this before a few weeks ago, but, but the reality is that all of us, I mean, it's, it's, it's very unlikely that any of us is somehow living a life untouched by mental illness, whether that's personal experience or whether that's a loved one or a family member, a friend who is experiencing it themselves, a coworker or a neighbor. Mental illness is, is one of the leading disabilities in, in America, just in our uh, national community. It's, it's prevalent. It's out there. It affects probably more people than, than we can imagine and the church can't be caught flat-footed. We've got to be ready, be prepared, and be encouraged to go and help and serve. I want to answer that question with you this morning by looking at a story that we find in the Gospel of Mark. So if you have a Bible, open it with me to Mark chapter 2. In Mark 2, we get a story about Jesus, about a person who needs healing, who finds that healing in Jesus, and then about a community of people who help this person find healing in Jesus. It's a remarkable story, Mark chapter 2. We'll pick it up in verse 1. And when he, being Jesus, returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. Indeed, the world has never seen anything like this. God in Christ coming to bring healing and transformation, to bring wholeness, to bring life out of death, new creation. And you have in this story a remarkable narrative of God in Christ acting to bring this healing, to bring this resurrection life. And, and what strikes me about the story and many people throughout the years is the, the four friends here who, who bring the paralytic they, they, they seem to be kind of the center of the action here. In fact, um, Jesus remarks on their faith. He, he notices their faith, not the faith of the, the paralytic, the faith of the four friends here. So you have Jesus. He has begun his ministry. He's at like peak popularity here. Think like Justin Bieber back in like 2010, okay? Can't go anywhere. Moms are punching each other. There's just nowhere left to go in this home. That was a thing that happened. I was teaching at the time. It was very crazy. 
I don't know if you've ever been in a concert or you've ever been in a situation where it is packed, shoulder to shoulder, hip to hip, and like you, had, you got there early, you waited outside, you got good seats, and you're standing there, you're enjoying the situation, and then you maybe hear some pounding above you and some dust starts to sprinkle down on top of you, and you look up and, okay, the ceiling's starting to be removed. Some people really want to get in here. There's an inconvenience being caused here. What, what, what's happening? Well, there are these four friends, and they have a, a buddy who's paralyzed. He can't move. And these four friends are going to stop at nothing to make sure that this, this man, the, the friend of theirs, gets the healing that Christ has come to bring. I love the community that you, you find here. I think you have an example here of what the church is called to be, this community of healers who, who stand up for and work for and tirelessly advocate for those who, who need it. You have uh, just this, this incredible picture of friendship here. I think we all need four stretcher friends, right? I mean, we all need in our life four friends who would pick up the mat for us who would climb up onto the ceiling for us, who would dig off that roof for us and lower us down. What a blessing. I mean, what, uh, what if people had these type of friends? What if the church was this type of place where people really had this type of support? Could you imagine how we might be able to flourish in ways that we otherwise wouldn't? How we might be able to serve, risk, sacrifice in ways we otherwise wouldn't because we know we have this foundation. We know we have this support. This, this beautiful friendship, I mean, it's like, a, it's like a, it's frat brothers here, right? I mean, they're unwaveringly loyal to each other, and they don't care about personal property. I mean, this is, nothing's going to stop them. There's no obstacle that's going to get in their way. As they commit to making sure their friend receives this healing. Now, it doesn't seem to me a very big stretch to think about mental illness in the place of a man here who is paralyzed. Mental illness, by definition, usually results in a disruption of one's functioning, life functioning. It makes it harder to do the kind of basic things that human beings need to do and are called to do and are expected to do. It, it often cuts you off from social connections that human beings were created for. It, it often keeps you from enjoying the things that God has created and intends you to enjoy. If you've ever struggled with mental illness like I have, that at times it kind of feels maybe like mentally or emotionally you can feel kind of paralyzed. Like it's hard to take that step. You know you're supposed to move in that direction, but the muscle memory just isn't working the right way. It can be hard to move. It can be hard to desire what you know you should desire, to do what you know you should do. And yet there are a group of people out there who say, well, we'll pick it up. We'll do whatever we have to do. Nothing will stop us. We'll patch the roof later. We're going to get you to the Christ. We're going to get you to the one who's come to bring healing. How could we do that? How can we do that for someone in our life who is like this paralytic man? How can we as a church be prepared to come alongside and, and embody this example that we have been given of, of being a community of healers? Or I want to suggest three ways this morning. Two ways that we can do this. The first is that you and I as the church, we can and are called to stand in the gap spiritually for those who are struggling and suffering from mental illness. What do I mean by this? Stand in the gap spiritually. 
I mean that sometimes faith is contagious. Sometimes you can catch faith. Perhaps sometimes you can even borrow faith. I love this story, particularly because we don't know much about this paralytic man. We don't, we don't really know if he had faith. You can maybe imagine that if you're paralyzed and, and you've held up hope for so long that maybe you've gotten to a point where you're just not so sure things are going to change for you. And yet, that doesn't matter. That doesn't stop this man from receiving healing. Why? Because he's got friends who have faith. He borrows their faith. Their faith, in a sense, is credited to this man. In my own personal experience, I know that I've gone through times in my life where people have seemingly had faith for me. Or where I couldn't quite pray the way I needed to pray, but it was okay because people were praying for me. Or I, I had a hard time really believing what I, I knew I needed to believe, but it, it was okay for that time being because other people believed it for me. Or I had a hard time holding out hope the way you and I need to hold out hope to survive and endure, but, but for a limited time it was okay. Why? Because there are people around me who hoped for me, who could see what I couldn't see, who could claim what I couldn't claim, who could speak words of encouragement and truth into my life when, when I couldn't speak or recognize those myself. Cyril of Jerusalem, a fourth century church father, commenting on this passage said that perhaps it's the case that faith is so powerful that some have been saved by others believing. Maybe we wouldn't go that far, yet still in this narrative we have a powerful example of faith that works the faith that's credited to others. Theodore Jennings on this passage says, if you were to draw an example of faith, a definition of faith from this story, perhaps it's a, it's a holy impatience. It's a all-out, go-for-broke determination that the lame might be able to walk. And that's what the community of friends does. They stand in the gap for this man. What he cannot do, they do for him. Perhaps what he cannot do, Without hope for, have faith for, they do for him. This is part of the transformational nature of community. And if you've experienced this, I mean, if you go to church for any extended amount of time, what you'll find is there, there are things that are hard to describe that are very beautiful and transformative about community in church. There are things that, that you know and appreciate from experience that maybe intuitively you never would have identified or, or really listed out and, and one of these things, I think, is the fact that we can rely on each other, that you can, you can draw real emotional and mental and spiritual strength from the people around you. So if you go to church for any extended period of time, there's going to be a Sunday where you wake up and you're not going to want to go. You show up and people are singing and you're like, I don't want to sing. Or you're singing, but at times where your heart really feels it and it's clicking, it's just not on this morning, but it's okay. Why? Because you've got a brother next to you and he can sing for you this morning. You have a sister next to you and she can sing for you this morning. You're not in this thing alone. You haven't been left in the wind by yourself to collapse in on yourself. You can stand on the mat being held up by others. The scriptures tell us that prayer is powerful when people are sick and suffering, that the community of believers should pray for them. Christians are called to stand in the gap 
spiritually. We're called to speak these words of encouragement. We're called to pray. This is a powerful way, I think, that the community of believers can help those who are struggling, can help those who need help. Faith is contagious. It can be caught. It can be borrowed. Sometimes the faith of our friends is enough to see us through that that moment. So we can stand in the gap spiritually. The the second way that, that we can help, that we can become this community of healers is we can embody the compassion of God concretely. Embody the compassion of God concretely. It's been noted that mental illness, unlike other things that people suffer, is, is like the no casserole illness in the church. Right? I mean, if you come down with something else, churches are typically pretty good at, and we can give thanks for this, kind of rallying around. So if you have a situation in your life and we become aware of it, we'll pop a care calendar online. We'll get some meals delivered to you. If you've never experienced this, let me just tell you, it'll blow your mind. It makes life really easy. It's, it means a real ministry. I was a skeptic for a while, even as a pastor. I was like, okay, it's just meals. I can order, take out myself, and make it, make it work. And then all of a sudden, the first time I was down and out and people were bringing me meals, I was like, oh, wow, I feel the love of God. It might have been like the sugar, a lot of carbs, a lot of casseroles, but there was also love and, and ministry there. But for lots of reasons, one of which is because it's harder to talk about and it's harder to share. Another reason we just don't quite think of it in the same way. Often people who struggle with, with these type of things, they, they don't receive the same type of practical care. And this real like nitty-gritty, everyday level practical care often is, is so powerful and transformative in people's lives. Imagine, imagine what the community would be like if someone who's struggling with depression or anxiety or bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or some kind of trauma disorder or some kind of neurological decline, if, if the church were able to rally around them and bring meals. And, and I mean, the way you can meet someone's needs in this practical way are endless. You can babysit. You can walk the dog. There's so many ways for us to exhibit selflessness, acts of service and kindness. And they're powerful. Again, from personal experience, I've, I've experienced this. There's a time in, in Lindsay and I's life where, where she was sick and in the hospital, and, and while she was in the hospital, some people from the church came over and redid our apartment, and it was great. I mean, they put up blinds and pictures, all the things that I can't do. And, and I'll tell you, I mean, it was just, right? I mean, crazy, crazy powerful. It was such a beautiful act of love. There's something transformative about a community like that that will rally around people when they need help. They'll say, there's, there's nothing we, we're not going to do here. There's no need that we won't meet here. There are endless ways that the church can, can embody the compassion of God concretely. Another way that the church can do this is through financial assistance. Mental health care is expensive. And I know a lot of people who struggle with mental illness, I don't know what it says about me, will assume the good things. Almost all of them I know have not sought care at some level or at some time in their life because of financial reasons. It's expensive. Let's be honest, 
health care is expensive. Mental health care is no different. And oftentimes, quality care and then extended care is not covered the same way other things are covered. And a good therapist doesn't take insurance. And these costs can stack up. And again, the church at its best, I think, is good at rallying around people and, and, and collecting funds and, and helping and assisting those who need it. And yet, because mental illness still kind of stands on an island, kind of stigmatized a little bit, and, and people are less open and honest about it and, and, and feel a little less support, often it's the case that sometimes those bills don't get help the way they can be by the church. There was a story going around a few months ago of a church that, um, in, in, in response to medical debt, and the, just the problem of medical debt, said, hey, we'll just we'll raise money ourselves and, and see what we can do, what kind of dent we can put in it, and ended up paying off millions of dollars of medical debt for people in their community and even outside of their church community and their geographical community. It's just an amazing example of what the church can do when, when, we, when we say and take seriously our, our calling to be a community of healers. When we see a need, when we see something someone can't do for themselves and say, hey, we can do this. Then again, imagine the impact on the world that such a community might have. We live in a time where our imaginations have been taken over by partisan politics. All of our brains have been infected by a virus. It's called the American political system. And it has deeply infected the church in America in a dangerous and sad and ugly and perverted and unfaithful way. And one of the ways this manifests itself is in imagination. So when a problem confronts us, everyone's instinct, our gut reflex, is we think of political solutions. And then this then leads to debates on Facebook and arguments at Thanksgiving dinner because people have different opinions about political solutions, right? And so we see a problem and we think, okay, the government can fix it this way or the government can get out of it and fix it this way and I pay tax dollars and I want these tax dollars used this way or that way. I'm going to South Carolina in a couple of weeks and I'll be doing some guest lectures at Southern Wesleyan University about culture and Christianity. And one of the exercises I'll take these students through, I've done it multiple times, is we'll do our uh, imagination exercise. How does the church exist in the world? And I'll guarantee you for about an hour and a half, all the solutions students will come up to for a problem from a Christian perspective will involve the government. And I'll say, okay, what if the church just did something on its own? What if the church was like, hey, we're actually a group of people ourselves. And we have some, some power and some resources and some money. And this doesn't mean the government's not important, that political processes are not important, but it does mean that sometimes the church can say, let's just take direct action on this. Sometimes the church doesn't have a social strategy to give to the world as much as it is a social strategy. It's medical debt. What are we going to do with that? We, get, we can talk, right? I mean, loan forgiveness, taxes, economy. Or a group of Christians can go, hey, we've got savings. What if we banded together? And then, I mean, when groups of Christians really commit themselves to things like this, Huge dents are made, right? I mean, it takes imagination for the community to say, okay, what if we stepped up and we did this? What if we stepped up and we moved in, in powerful ways? 
And assisting people financially um, in this way is, is, is powerful. I'd say this as well in terms of these acts of kindness and service, taking care of people and on a practical level. It's often the case that one of the best things you can do for someone struggling with mental illness is take care of the people taking care of them. So care for the caretakers. Again, if you've ever been in this situation or, or known someone in this situation, you've probably seen how exhausting and deflating it can be to walk with someone with a chronic illness or have a parent towards the end of their life in hospice or retirement home or, or living with you, someone depending on you. I mean, it can, it can kind of be soul-crushing. It was just a heavy, heavy weight. And oftentimes it's the caretakers who are overlooked. And you need that help. And oftentimes it's the case that these are the people who are in the trenches, right? These are the people who know the needs the best, who are, are, are best equipped to meet the needs of those who are struggling. And so perhaps the best way we could support someone is to support their spouse, support their siblings, support their family taking care of the caretakers, we can give them some extra strength and some more endurance so they can stay in the trenches so they can keep fighting for and praying for and holding out hope for their loved ones who are struggling. And stand in the gap. Spiritually, we can embody the compassion of God concretely. And then the third one, the last one this morning, we can, we can advocate for the well-being of others. The friends here in this, this narrative in Mark, they had faith for their friend. Jesus saw their faith. Faith is something that can be seen. It has action and legs and movement. They embodied it concretely. They used their strength and their resources. And they, they stood up for their friend. If there was a ceiling between Jesus and their friend, they were going to get rid of that ceiling. You and I can do the same thing when it comes to people with mental illness who are struggling with symptoms of psychological disorder, emotional distress. One of the ways we can do this is we can educate ourselves. We can learn more about these illnesses. We can learn about the ways they manifest. We can learn about the best approaches and treatments for the problems that people face. We can, like we did last week, we can think through the narratives that we hear and repeat and tell other people. All of this plays into reducing stigma, increasing honesty and openness about these issues. This is just something that has to be on repeat all the time. I mean, so we have a, a violence problem in our culture and, and, and what you'll hear in um, lockstep with this conversation about how we deal with the violence that we see is how we deal with mental health in our culture. And oftentimes, if left unchecked, there's a, there's a wrong assumption here. The assumption being that people who are mentally ill are more likely and more dangerous to commit these violent crimes that we see in the news all the time. In fact, someone with mental illness is much more likely to be the victim of a violent crime than the offender. But we, we wouldn't know this, right, unless we, we educate ourselves. We read and we dig in. You can't advocate for somebody else. You can't, you can't speak for their truth and well-being unless you're grounded in the, the facts. As a church, perhaps ministries can be started. Support groups can exist. Resources can be referred to. 
one of the ways that, that you and I are called to advocate for the well-being of others, particularly those with mental illness, is we're called to protect them. We're called to protect people with mental illness. We haven't talked about this yet throughout the series, but uh, in American culture right now, um, we're living through a public health epidemic crisis. Um, and so the way this plays out is 45,000 people-ish this year will take their own life. This is 33% higher than it was in 1999. This seems to be increasing with no end in sight right now. There are lots of reasons for this. Lots of reasons. It's a very complex issue. What's, what's really not debatable is this is a big problem. And it's not magically going to go away. People more and more know someone who's tried to hurt themselves or has hurt themselves or know someone who has a friend who has hurt themselves or a loved one. And again, there's stigma and silence around this. But there are ways that you and I can help others, even when it comes to things like hurting ourselves, people who, who struggle with suicidal ideation. One of the ways, again, is honesty, by speaking about it. If you know someone who's depressed and you have this type of relationship with them, it's okay. In fact, it's probably wise to ask them, are you thinking about hurting yourself? This may be counterintuitive to some of us because we might like worry. We don't want to give someone an idea, right? If you go talk to psychologists and psychiatrists, here's what they say. That's not how it works. That's not how it works. Ask. And then, then protect. If you know someone who's at risk, if you know someone who's thinking about this, make sure that they're safe. So you can pull the public, and what we've found is the American culture in particular, we're very fatalistic when we think of people hurting themselves. In, in terms of like, we think if people want to do this or if they, they've ever struggled with this, they're going to. When, if you play this out in real life, the facts don't support this, which is great news, right? Because there's something about the human condition where people can reach what seems like rock bottom and yet still experience these beautiful, transformative turnarounds. This is really good news. But, but we get locked into this thinking like there's nothing we can do. And, and it's just not true. There's lots of things we can do. Proven, researched, evidence-based things that we can do. If someone's struggling with this, if there's a gun in the house, you can lock it up or move it. When you do things like this, study after study after study after study shows people stop taking their lives. The rates plummet. Okay, we don't need to get into a conversation about gun control and, and policy here. This is about protecting people. Again, we're very fatalistic about this, but this is just not how it works out in real life. So um, bridges, these big public bridges, people sometimes will go and, and jump off of to try to, to end their lives. And if you pull the public and say, hey, if we like install a steel net underneath this bridge to try to dissuade people from doing this, do you think this would stop people from hurting themselves? And the public overall in general says, no. If someone wants to hurt themselves, they're going to hurt themselves. But guess what? When we install these steel nets... Then you go to these cities and you look at the data. What do you think happens? The rates plummet. Because really anything you can give for someone to have a chance to reach out or to think a little bit more about the decision or to have 
a couple more minutes for something to remind them of something else or some hope, some help that they can get. All of these things can change a life, can extend a life. We can, in real, powerful, effective ways, protect people. And it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And lastly, as we advocate for people, we've, we've got to, and this applies for everything we've really talked about this morning, we've got to be patient. Mental illness, like a lot of chronic illnesses, is messy and long-term a lot of the times. And we often, out of a kind of cultural expectation of immediacy and out of a medical model of like antibiotics, we would like people to just go get treated and come back when they're better. Right, like take the medicine, go do what you need to do, and then come back and then, okay, it's, it's all, it's, we got a brand new start. That's just not, not the case in real life. It's often a long-term situation. We have to be patient with ourselves. We have to be patient with other people. We have to be okay with the mess that comes. We have to be okay with the fact that sometimes we're not going to know the exact right thing to do. We have to be okay with the fact that sometimes welcoming people with these type of struggles might make things a little bit messier or uncomfortable. We have to be okay with the fact that it, it might require us to sacrifice, to be a little more selfless, or a little more service. And all of these things, you and I can become more and more, I think, a faithful community of healers, like these friends of the paralytic. And again, if we were just to cast vision for a second this morning, what a gift to the world it would be for God in Christ through the Spirit to create a community who's able to offer this type of support and love who's able to model in their love and mercy and patience and acceptance the mercy and acceptance and patience of God. It's often the case that we have a hard time believing God loves us or maybe God loves us, but I mean, we're just taking so long to get over these things. And so often it's, it's the people of God who are able to show us love that convince us that God then can love us, right? If, if God's children can love me despite all these failures and despite the mess and despite the, the timetable, then maybe it will click somewhere inside of me that this is reflective of their Father in heaven, God's own heart towards them. Mental illness is something that is prevalent around us and the church is, I think, very uniquely poised to bring something beautiful to the world, to give to the world something that it would not have otherwise, the gift from God in Christ. And so may we be faithful. May we seek out, look for, and fight for the paralytics in our society in our community. May we rejoice in the truth that we have friends who carry the mat for us. May we rejoice in the fact that we've got a God who will carry the mat for us. That what Christ has done on the cross and through his resurrection is what these friends have done, just on a larger scale. 
where we were weak and unable to do for ourselves what needed to be done, Christ has come and has done that. And as we rejoice and give thanks and worship him for his gift of salvation, may we be faithful conduits of that love to the people around us.